Hi. I hope you brought your Bible tonight. We're going to be kind of uh, mostly in a couple of places, but but it it would be a it's a good night. I hope I hope um, I hope your Bible gets gets some of your marking in it. Uh, I know that it's God's holy word and the content is God's word to us, and that is not to be disputed. But this this physical object, this collection of of paper and leather and ink. Uh, or cardboard, or whatever yours is, this, this is just a physical artifact. And, and would that it look like a workbook, not like a museum display. So, um, so um, when Jesus was asked about the end of the age, and we're going to look at his, his sermon on that topic, Jesus made reference to a, to a, 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 a single verse in the book of Daniel. In the course of Jesus' end of the age message, he made a reference to when you, when you see the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And so we're going to, we're going to come back to Jesus' end time message tonight because I believe, unsurprisingly, that when the disciples asked Jesus about events at the end of the age, Jesus laid out what events at the end of the age are going to look like for his disciples. Uh, and in the course of doing that, he pegged back to this, to this reference in Daniel. Before I go too far tonight, I want to reiterate, because I saw a lot of hands for people who weren't here last week. Um, when one deals with eschatology, one takes positions. I've joked for years that if you put five Baptists in a room, you'll have nine different eschatologies. <laughs> I, I, they, they multiply like rabbits. Last week I began with, and this week, since there are so many of you that are new, I need to reiterate this and please hear my heart on this as we move through what we're going to move to, through for the next hour and a bit. I have three objectives, as far as I'm concerned, as I, as I prepare and deliver the material that I'll be delivering last week, tonight, and for the next weeks. My first objective, my first desire for you, is that you, 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 based on your Bible and a legal pad, that you would come, in this matter as in other matters, to understand what you believe and why you believe it. Um, one of the implications of that objective is that it is, it is not, 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 not my, an objective of mine that you hold the same position that I hold. Last week, I, uh, I read you our church's position on last things. It is Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 version. I said last week, and I'll repeat it again, no one, not, not me, not you, not any individual elder, no one can start a sentence on a doctrinal matter that begins with, McGregor Baptist Church believes, if the rest of that sentence is not a citation, in terms of a doctrinal summary understanding from the Baptist Faith and Message. Our church has adopted a profession of faith, a statement of faith, and that is it. So, of course we believe the Bible, 
But you and I are both grown-ups, and we know that, that, that biblical matters are subject to interpretive thought. I don't want to interpret the Bible. I just want to read it and do what it says. Well, there's a verse in this Matthew passage we got that says, if you're up on the rooftop, don't come down. Which means if you've ever gone to a rooftop, you're stuck up there forever unless you're prepared to interpret. We always interpret. We inevitably interpret. May we do it well. And if we happen to end up landing on different pieces of interpretation as where we choose to place our interpretation, as long as we are within, for our, for our church, within the boundaries of our church's confession of faith, we're fine. We don't have to agree. I don't have enough... Um, Goodness gracious, it is my joy to be one of the shepherds of this, of this, this by under shepherds of this body of Christ. And I, I, packaged in that is not some pathological ego need to be agreed with. Um, okay? But that you would know, that you would agree with you based on work you've done in the Word of God. You understand that if you get so hopped up about what I teach you tonight that you've got to go spend 20 hours convincing yourself I'm quite wrong and you spend that 20 hours in the Word of God with a legal pad, I win. <laughs> Even if your conclusion differs from mine because I've driven you into the Word of God that you would, you would become more acquainted to what God Himself has said. That's my objective. Second objective, I have three. Second objective, that you would have a, a trouble-ready faith. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, Peter said, don't think it's a strange thing when a fiery trial comes on you. Most of us have little acquaintance with, with real persecution. Our persecution is when somebody says happy holidays to us instead of Merry Christmas. <laughs> Some of you have dealt with more than that, and I, and I appreciate that, but I've, I've grown up in North America in the latter 20th and early 21st centuries, lived the same years many of you have lived. And um, I am concerned that, that our little bubble in the grand history of the church, our little geographical bubble, our little chronological bubble may have left some of us with the impression that hard persecution is not a part of what Christianity was designed to endure. The Word of God says differently. The grand scope of Christian history says differently. Christianity on planet Earth in 2019 says differently. You and I live in a nice little protected bubble, and I'm not knocking it, but we dare not have a faith that is only normalized for life in that bubble. Third objective. See, that you would have a... Oh! <laughs> this is what happens when I get away from my notes. And I've already intimated to this. Um... In, in dealing with, with matters of theology, there are primary matters and secondary matters. And the existence of secondary matters forces a couple of skills on us that we really have to have. First, we have to be able to tell the difference between a primary matter and a secondary matter. What, what, boy, 
di disagree with me on the timing of the rapture and you and I in a billion years from now are going to be okay. Disagree, well, disagree with me on the fact that Jesus Christ is God and I love you but you're going to go to hell and roast forever and I don't want that for you. There's a difference. So you have to have a, an ability to tell the difference between primary matters and secondary matters and then... You've got to have the ability to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit when someone you care about differs from you on a secondary matter. The world is full of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people who disagree with you on secondary matters. And if you, if you can't move forward in loving relationship and essential unity with people who differ from you on secondary matters, your life is going to get progressively lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. I'm told of the old Puritan man who said to his wife, wrong, wrong, dear wife, they are all wrong but me and thee, and at times I wonder about thee. <laughs> no way to live. Jesus directed us to have a look at, at, at the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. That sends us back, and I'll, I'll start there tonight, Daniel chapter 9. Beginning around verse 20 of Daniel 9, God begins to unfold a vision to Daniel of, of a period of 70 weeks. The word week is literally the word seven, 70 sevenths. And, and because this is not a, a prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament course, allow, allow me to, uh, well, let me, verse 24, Daniel 9, 24. 70 weeks are decreed, 70 sevenths, 483, no, 490 years, uh, 70 times seven, about your people in your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe out injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 69 sevens, 483 years. That's the period that elapsed between the decree of King Darius to um, to rebuild Jerusalem and the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. And there are lots and lots of, of charts and diagrams and calculations that have shown that. It's beyond the scope of this course for me to look at, at uh, prophecy in the interbiblical period. But of Daniel's 77s, we have one left. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll have nothing. Uh, the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27 is the verse that Jesus pointed back to in his end times message. Verse 27 has three concepts in it that we've got to define before we move forward. So let me read it to you. He, and that he is... The coming prince, referred to in verse 26, the people of the coming prince will destroy the city. The uh, pronoun pre, 
he, the pronoun he in verse 27 refers back. Some sort of coming prince. He will make a firm covenant with many for one seven. That is a seven-year treaty, a covenant. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple. That is, in the middle of that future seven, he's going to, sacri- he's going to commit a, an, an, an abominable sacrilege in the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolation. So we have, we have a, a, seven, a, se- a period of seven, we have the abomination of desolation, and then we have decreed destruction poured out. Let me give you three terms. And what I would suggest to you tonight, take note, if, if you're a comfortable note taker with a comfortable way of taking notes, great. If you, if you want to use the back of the eight and a half by 11 handout to just kind of scratch some notes, also great. Really want to encourage you to do some note taking, okay? Three, three terms that kind of arise out of this verse, Daniel 9, 27. The first, in most modern prophecy study, Daniel's 70th week, this future, this future seven, has been referred to as the tribulation. A seven-year period that begins when the coming prince appears and creates a, a covenant with many. That's all we know so far from Daniel. We, know, we'll, we learn more later. And that, that begins the 70th week. Second, we know that about halfway through the 70th week, we encounter something called the abomination of desolation. When this same coming prince, quote, puts a stop to sacrifice and offering and does something abominable in the temple. He usurps the temple, the abomination, at about the midpoint. So two terms so far. The 70th week or the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, and finally, this this final outpouring of wrath that ends that seven-year period We will learn, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce this term, it is the day of the Lord. It is just as the seven years near their conclusion, God begins to pour His wrath on a rebellious earth. It comes at the end of the 70th week, the day of the Lord. Some end times teaching conflates, combines the day of the Lord and the 70th week as though they are the same thing. They are not the same thing. The day of the Lord marks the end of Daniel's 70th week and the beginning of the active outpouring of God's wrath. The 70th week is a time where there are lots of things going on. But the active outpouring of God's wrath is not one of them. All right? So hold those terms. Come with me to Matthew 24.
Tuesday evening before he's going to go to the cross on Friday. Matthew 24, we'll start in verse 3 and go down. Ultimately, we'll make our way down through verse 31. And if you don't mind, somewhere where you have a little bit of space, go ahead and, and, and make a little numbered list, one, two, three, four, five, six. Number from one to six, somewhere where you have room to as we walk through this. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us. When will these things happen? He's just been talking about the destruction of the temple. And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, because they asked two questions, the, the destruction of the temple and your coming in the end of the age, actually three questions, but, but his coming in the end of the age are combined, and then the destruction of the temple. There's no question that also wrapped up in this discourse is the fact that the temple will be completely destroyed about 40 years, a little less than 40 years after Jesus preached this sermon. But what won't happen at that destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70 is the abomination of desolation. No one is going to usurp the temple worship. They're just going to knock the temple down in 70 A.D. So Jesus, Jesus speaks of the siege of Jerusalem, which is both a, a close prophetic event and a far prophetic event. But, but he speaks of the abomination specifically, and that is the usurping of the temple, not its mere destruction. We'll get to that. So the bulk of what he's going to unfold here is answering the question, what are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? He answers. Watch out, verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. If you don't mind where you wrote one, uh, false Messiah. Many will come in my name saying I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Boy, boy all the way through the New Testament's teaching on last things weaves the message of hope. Please don't lose that. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Where you've written number two on your list, write lots of wars. Continuing, there will be famines. I like famine. I'm a huge fan of food. 
where you've written number three, if you don't mind, write famine. And notice we're just walking through the Olivet Discourse in order. At this point in the discourse, some of you have a footnote. Some translations have a footnote after the word famines. Um, raise your hand if your Bible, right after the word famines, has a little footnote that they send you to the notes. All right, what, is, what does the note say? Because there, there are some manuscript differences here where early manuscripts sometimes include an additional word, and frankly, it's disputable whether it's actually there or not in Matthew. What's the word? Earthquakes. Okay, but is that in the footnote or is that in the text? That's in the text. What's in the footnote? Epidemics. All right. At, at Luke 21, 11, this same place in the Gospel of Luke, it says plagues or, academic, or epidemics, widespread epidemic. So, number four on your list of six, write widespread epidemics. And if you want to throw in earthquakes in various places as well, because Jesus referred to those. Epidemics and plague with a side helping of earthquake. Verse 8, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9, still reading, Jesus' end-time message to his disciples when his disciples asked him, what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And many will take offense and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And you've heard me quote that before. And then the end will come. Number five, martyrdom and betrayal. If you want to put behind betrayal, if you want to put... You can't betray someone if they didn't trust you. You can't betray someone if they're not an insider. You can be an enemy as an outsider, but to be a betrayer, you have to be an insider, like a Judas, right? So beside betray, betrayer, right, if you, if you, if you're, uh, apostasy or falling away, there will be those who have been beloved of Christians, close to Christians, perhaps appear to be Christians, but under, under the pressure of, of persecution, this isn't un, unheard of on planet Earth today, but this is a new scale. You wrote that beside number five, right? In light of number five, the preposition that starts verse 15 is so. So, 
That is, in light of the previous paragraph, in light of those martyrdoms. So, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So that that martyrdom is associated by, by linkage here to the abomination of desolation. It appears that the abomination of desolation plays a role in triggering that wave of horrific persecution. And we know from Daniel, Daniel has placed the abomination of desolation for us in chronology. He's placed it at the middle of the seventh week. Daniel says the abomination comes at the middle of Daniel's 70th week. Go back to Daniel 9, 27. Jesus places the abomination right here after the events that he has called the beginning of birth pangs in verse 8. Let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man, on a, a man on a housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. I always use that verse, Matthew 24, 17, when somebody tells me that you don't have to interpret Scripture, you just have to obey it. I always smile and say, so I assume you've never been on a roof. Because if you don't have to interpret Scripture and you've ever been on a roof, Matthew 24, 17 says you can't come down. Of course we interpret and a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. And, and woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great tribulation. The part up to the abomination of desolation, the beginning of birth pangs. The part after, great tribulation. Jesus' labels, not mine. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. I believe that that back period, that back half, is somewhat shorter than three and a half years because of this verse, another interpretive matter. If anyone tells you, Look, here is the Messiah. We're in this season of persecution after the abomination of desolation. If anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or over here, don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. That is, you see this, you know this is coming. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Beside your number six, write signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Then, 
the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of heaven with power and great glory. We'll come back to Matthew 24 in a moment. Just put a ribbon or a marker or a finger or trust yourself to be able to find it. Come with me to the book of Revelation. Jesus was asked by his disciples, what is the sign of your appearing? What, are we, what is the sign of the end of the age? The book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a peek forward from a heavenly perspective. A couple of Sundays ago on Heaven Sunday, I preached from Revelation chapter 4 on that amazing, phenomenal moment when the Lamb takes the scroll. When, when after, a, after a, a, a search of heaven and earth, and I told you that Sunday morning, the scroll of Revelation 4 is, is the tale of all time. The history of it all. And the, and the right to take the scroll is the right to claim the mastery over all history. And heaven laments at first because no one is found worthy to take the scroll. But then the Lamb, seated on the throne, the Lamb as having been slain, seated on the throne, Jesus, the enthroned Christ, is found to be worthy to take the scroll and open the seals thereof. I believe the next event on, on God's prophetic timetable, and he has this figured out. Uh, uh, Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17 that God the Father has fixed a day for the day of judgment. If he's fixed a day for the day of judgment, he's fixed the rest of this as well. I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the moment when the Lamb takes the scroll. I don't know when that's coming, but there will come a time when Jesus will say that is enough of status quo history, and it's time to bring things round to their consummation. And the finale of verse 4 is the song of the Lamb that he's worthy to take the scroll, and so he takes it. And so when the curtain comes up on chapter 5, Jesus has the seven-sealed scroll that is His dominion over history. And He begins to loosen the seven seals. Now, we already talked through the Olivet Discourse, right? Just briefly, I admit, we've got several weeks in this course. I'm going fast tonight. We already saw from Jesus' reference to the abomination of desolation and Daniel's placing of the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the 70th week, we already have a flow from Jesus of what that seven-year period looks like. We made a list from one to six, right? The Lamb begins to unseal the scroll. What was number one on our list? 
All right. Revelation 7. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there was a white horse. Who in the book of Revelation is most associated with being the rider on a white horse? Jesus. This ain't him. The horseman had on it a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he, sent, he, he went out as a victor to conquer. He's got a crown. He's got worldly dominion. He's got the symbols of authority and power. He's even got a white horse. But he's not the real Christ. He is a false Christ. In fact, he's the ultimate false Christ. The first seal is the appearance of a false Christ on the world stage. Just like Jesus told his followers to look for. Let's read on. The second seal. What was number two on our list from the Olivet Discourse? When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse went out, a fiery red one. And its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that the people would slaughter one another and a large sword was given to him. The second seal is war on the earth. What was our third seal from the Olivet Discourse? Famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. And then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a whole day's work, a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a whole day's work. But do not harm or spare the olive oil and the wine. The fourth seal, famine. Pardon me, third seal. I, I can't count. I have computers. <laughs> the unveiling of a false Christ on the world stage. World conflict. Famine. The story of the Olivet Discourse is the story of the seals. The story of the Olivet Discourse is the story of the seals. And we'll see in a little while why that matters for the issue of the timing of the rapture. What was our fourth seal? You're right, I was talking about the third. What was the fourth? Plagues and stuff. Then he opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a pale green horse, and the horseman on it was named Death. And Hades followed after him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now, I'll give you that he doesn't mention earthquake here, and Jesus didn't mention wild animals in the Olivet Discourse. But a, a, a massive 25% die-off of the human population from a combination of factors, including plague, epidemics, 
It's bad. It's bad. But wow, is there a ticking clock. What was our number five? He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? And so a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little while longer until that number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. We got to the sixth seal. Pardon me. We got to number six on your list from the Olivet Discourse. And what was it? Sign in the sun, moon, and stars that, that, that foretell the immediate and soon coming of the Lord. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. Ooh, I thank Jesus for the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the day of their wrath has come. The sixth sign, the sixth seal, the cosmic signs portend the beginning of the day of the Lord. And who is able to stand? What I want you to have seen so far is that the Olivet Discourse, the end times message of Jesus that answers the question, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age tells us of a series of future events. That same series of future events is told through chapter 6 and the six seals in the book of Revelation. So far, in answering the question of his followers about what should they be looking for toward the end of the age, Jesus hasn't said anything about the removal of his people from the earth. We agreed last week in my list of nine R's. There's a rapture in here. When? Come back with me to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has not left that question unanswered. Why would Jesus leave that question unanswered? It is the blessed hope of his people at what will be a terribly dark time. Back in Matthew 24 where we left. We've just had, we've just had these signs. The sun is darkened. The moon is not going to shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky. And by the way, that same, that's, that's a, that quote from Jesus there in, in verse 29 of Matthew 24 is a, is a combination of statements from Joel chapter 2 verse 31 
and Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. So the Old Testament prophets also speak of these same signs portending the coming day of God's wrath. Uh, 13, 9 through 11. Glad to help. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now remember, we are after the abomination of desolation, which Daniel places in the middle of the 70th week. We're after that. We've had a season of martyrdom and persecution unlike anything the world has ever seen called the Great Tribulation. Now the sky has said, you better brace yourself. The sun is dark, the moon is blood, the stars are shaking. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And there comes an event. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Mark adds, from the end of earth to the end of the sky. That's in Mark 13, 27, same place. From the four winds, from one end of the sky to another. So whatever this event is that happens just at the sixth seal, just at the end of the 70th week, just at the beginning of the day of the Lord has the following characteristics. The Lord descending. The presence of angels. A loud trumpet. And the gathering of God's people. Hmm. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16, 17. The clearest passage in the word of God as a description of the rapture, but it says nothing about its timing. It doesn't have to. We have its timing from the Olivet Discourse. Unless you can show me another event with the Lord descending, angelic involvement, a loud trumpet, and the elect gathered from the earth and sky, they're talking about the same event, and they've placed it in chronology. What about the book of Revelation? We've been through the six seals. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 6 ends with, uh, with the sixth seal and the cosmic signs. By the way, within the sixth seal, the next round of judgments that are associated with the outpouring of God's wrath, the trumpet and bowl judgments, and we'll get to those in a future week. The sixth seal is opened. We turn the corner to Revelation chapter 7. And the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 7 concern themselves with 144,000 Jews that are sealed during this difficult time for future redemption. The Howards, um, as far back as the Norman invasion of England in 1066, are Brits. Uh, for all you Downton Abbey fans, um, you know, the family name is Crawley. The title is the Earl of Grantham. 
The title doesn't match the last name, right? The Howards are the Earls of Carlisle. There's a Castle Howard in York. I think I'm 9,871st to inherit. So if 9,870 other people die, I have a picture of Castle Howard in my office if you'd like to see it. The PBS series, Brideshead Revisited, was filmed there. And the Howards are the Earls Carlisle. So have a little respect for the royalty, if not clergy. Let's go. All of that to say, whatever else I am, I am quite certainly not Jewish. And so my primary concern is not on the 144,000 sealed Jews. Chapter 7 continues with clarity beginning in verse 9. Now remember, the sixth seal just happened. In a chronology that is completely consistent through the six seals with Jesus' end times message. And after the sixth seal, we've seen the Lord descending, angels shouting, trumpets blowing, and saved people being gathered up. What do we see in Revelation? After this, after what? After the sixth seal and the sealing of these Jews. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were, they'd not been mentioned until now. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This innumerable multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white? And where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. You weren't in it. You can't come out of it. Great multitude. Every tongue, tribe, and nation appears before the throne praising the Lord right after the sixth seal, exactly where Jesus put the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. Click. That's what I saw 35 years ago. Nothing I've shared with you is interpretively overly difficult. And again, you say, Brother Russell, you're starting to be argumentative. I have a position and I'm taking it. And I'm inviting you to look at it. Seal, seal, seal. Seal, seal, seal. Unnumbered multitudes suddenly appearing in heaven, explicitly said to have come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's a lot. And what I've given you on the front page of the handout that you have tonight, and I'm going to walk you through that handout so that you can take it and do some study on your own. 
Remember we said that that period of, of the first four seals is referred to by Jesus as the beginning of sorrows. So in the leftmost column, I've given you that beginning of sorrows. I said, uh, I said at any day now, the, what I believe to be the next event is the Lamb will take the scroll. That's in Revelation 5. I've given you columns for the Olivet Discourse, John in the book of Revelation. I've given you some things you can look at in First uh, and Second Thessalonians from the Apostle Paul. I've given you a, a, a one passage from Simon Peter, and then I've given you the three, the three, the the, the, the three things that are encapsulated in Daniel nine twenty seven. And remember, Daniel nine twenty seven belongs here because Jesus said it did. You and I would not have just stumbled on to the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 27, quite likely, if the Lord hadn't pointed us toward it, which gives us Daniel's 70th week, what happens at the midpoint, and what ends it. The rest of this is just filling in that broad outline from Daniel 9, 27. I've given you the verses that I believe mark the parallels of the, of the seals. I believe that that false Christ that emerges under the first seal that false Christ that Jesus said, look for a bunch of them, is the same one that steps forward and says, I'll give you worldwide peace. He is given a crown, according to the language of the first seal. And we'll talk about this more when we talk in weeks to come about the 70th week. The Antichrist covenant with Israel. And I put a question mark, temple rebuilt. Because in order for him certainly by the midpoint, in order for him to execute the abomination of desolation, there must be a temple. Um, there is not yet a temple, and there's lots of speculative writing and lots of fun things to read in prophetic literature about the how and the why of the future Jerusalem temple. I, I don't know, except I know that the abomination which we have been told to look for requires the presence of one. It'll be interesting to see how we get there. Second seal, widespread wars, Given you those verses. Third seal, scarcity and famine. Fourth seal, widespread death and disaster. Then, Antichrist will betray Israel. He'll betray the temple. Paul actually describes this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, did I give you that? Yeah, I did. Come with me to 2 Thessalonians. We haven't looked at that yet. Remember, Jesus said that during that period of martyrdom, which we know from Revelation, from a heaven perspective, is the fifth seal that there would be widespread betrayal, that there would be people who would betray believers. And you can't betray someone if you haven't been close to them. All right. Um, now concerning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Concerning His coming and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Notice he links both the appearing and the gathering with the day of the Lord. 
right? Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is a wide falling away from the faith comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. That's the abomination of desolation. Don't get whipped up that the coming of the Lord and the gathering of the saints has already happened because it's not going to happen until we have the abomination of desolation and a lot of people falling away from the faith. When you see that, perk up. Completely consistent with what is given in the Olivet Discourse, completely consistent with a straightforward chronology of the six seals and the appearance in heaven of an unnumbered multitude right after the sixth seal. So we have consistency in Paul, John, Jesus, Daniel. And we haven't needed any source outside of Scripture to, to draw out this composite Picture, which is why my first objective is that you would dive into Scripture to know what you believe and understand. Second Peter. This is the passage that I was reading when I realized that the, 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 the thief in the night, uh, scary evangelism rapture movies of my youth, of my, uh, my teenage years in the 70s, that used the idea of the thief in the night to picture some any moment secret snatching of the church. We're not, that was not the way the New Testament was using the term. Uh, 2 Peter, beginning in no, chapter 3. Dear friends, verse 8. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, meaning time moves. At a, that's not meant to describe a mathematical formula. That's meant to say time when viewed from heaven's perspective is a very different thing than time when viewed from earth's perspective. The Lord doesn't delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Someday the last person who will be saved before the Lamb takes the scroll will be saved. And that will be that. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now there it is, a thief. And on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. That doesn't sound like something secret and snatchy in, to me. I think Peter might disagree with the producers of that film that I saw in the 70s regarding what's coming like a thief. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you are not in darkness that that day would overtake you as a thief, believer. You'll know to expect it when it comes, the day of the Lord, because the Antichrist's revelation starts that seven-year ticking clock. Well, I wish this is the only time in meeting with my goodness, how many of you, praise God, you've come. 
and I am, I, am, I am humbled by that. If my objective were to get all of you to agree with me, I'd be as nervous as a cat because <laughs> I know I, I won't, and I'm okay with that. But I am humbled because it's, it's Wednesday night, and many of you have worked all day, and you've got lots of good things you could be doing, and here we are drilling about in God's Word together. And that is humbling and gratifying to me. Um, if I have been overly argumentative or uncharitable, I've denied my own purpose. I pray I haven't. If I have clearly outlined a position that either affirms some stuff you've thought or challenges some stuff you thought, I don't mind doing that every time I strap on a microphone. I wish if there were eight of us around a table, we could, we could have a Q&A and deal with some questions. But this crowd isn't conducive to that. I told you last week, my email address at work is my name. It's two S's and two L's, so if you spell it wrong, it won't find its way to me. But russell.howard at mcgregor.net. And if you have a question, now if you want to just have an argument, you win. Let's save ourselves the time. <laughs> you win, but I'm not changing my position. I've, I've been in this position and fought my way to it by my own study of God's Word nearly four decades ago. You won't change my position. I love you very much. And remember, I'm not even trying to change yours. But if you have a question that's a question, um, and you ask it in an email, and I think it would be broadly interesting... I'll bring it in here on a future Wednesday night and, and, and strive to deal with it. If it's a very narrow question, it might be something that I've got to go a little bit deeper with you than I feel like we can, we can haul 500 people on the journey with us. We maybe can have an email dialogue about your question. Nothing thrills me more, okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, your disciples ask you, what's it look like when we get near the end and you told them? And you pulled in Daniel's outline and you gave, a, you gave us a framework. Decades later, John in his revelation saw the same framework. Paul referred to the same framework. Peter made reference to the same framework. Or at least it appears to this student of your word. Lord, thank you for those nine R's we affirmed together last week. You're coming, you're coming for us. You're going to set things right. You're going to judge the world. And you're going you're to take us all to the heaven you've created for us. And Lord, as we, as we probe around in these secondary matters, may we submit to the truth of your word as our guideline as we carve out what we believe and why we believe it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and good night. <laughs>